Hello, everyone. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of the Geeky Bartender Podcast with Chris Raba. Hey there. And KT Vindicare. And it is July 6th, 2021. God, I was going to say 2001 for a second, but <laughs> I got to add the 20 in there because that's yeah. how old we are now. 2021. So it is a celebratory mood on today's podcast. We are celebrating for a couple of reasons. We just had the 4th of July, which was... You know, it was a little quiet for I think for both of us, but still. Yeah, I mean, I uh, fireworks and and getting roarously drunk are just like don't have the same appeal as they once did. I did go to a small like backyard gathering uh, because like backyard cookout because frankly, I had intended to like get some work done that day, um, but when. A professional chef says, hey, me and my other professional chef friends are getting together and doing a cookout. I'm feeling so left Do out. you want to come? You always say yes, nah. right? It's like if a, if, a, if, a, if a composer was like, hey, you want to come over and listen to some stuff I've been writing? You always say yes. If a professional who like that is their passion, that is what they do, right? If they're like, I'm going to be doing this for fun and you don't have to pay me, like... Yeah, you always say yes to those invitations. And not only that, but I'd say yes, I'll bring some beer. <laughs> right. I you know, and I asked, I was like, what do you want me to bring? Um, they were having uh they were having oysters, uh, and they were like, We have plenty of everything. And they really did. God bless them. Like, I love industry folk, because I was like, you know, they were like, Yeah, we're having oysters and wine and some other things. And um I was like, Okay, do you want me to bring anything? They're like, No, man, we're we're good, we've got plenty. And just in wine, not in like other categories, they had at like, I think it was, I counted, I was like, it was like over two bottles per person there. Like, and I was like, oh, God, God bless the service industry, folk. You know and, what that, I mean? and that right there is the second thing that we are celebrating. We are celebrating a relative return to normal for us here in Los Angeles, California. And we are celebrating the return of all of our industry folk to the professions they are either good at or that they love or both. Right. So, cheers, Chris. Yeah. It's been. Cheers, man. We had our somber COVID episode, and now we get to be like, well, we're on to better things again. Yeah, I do think we need to put normal in air quotes, right? We're, we're going to talk a little bit about that later. Yeah. But to start things off, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be celebrating myself personally because I'm back behind a bar again. Yeah, and congratulations, it's, man. Yeah, it's exciting. I know. You had some, you were able to like have some temporary work or some work here and there. Uh, doing catering and some other things like during the pandemic but for mm. me um this podcast is really the only thing i had to like still keep myself fresh in like the world of bartending and the world of cocktailing and so to finally once again you know be behind a bar and it's a much different experience than what i'm used to it's a completely different speed um you know there's a lot about it that's just you know a huge adjustment for me but what's not an adjustment is that, like, when I'm going, when I've got, like, tins in both hands, tickets coming in, and I've got, like, you know, glassware over here that I got a rack and everything, and that feeling of, what did you say when you hit that sixth gear? Hit the sixth gear. When you hit that yeah. sixth gear. I finally started feeling that because there was one Sunday in particular where I just wasn't prepared for, like, how busy I was about to get as soon as we opened the doors and I was opening. So I had this backlog of, like, things I had to get done, but I was still dealing with, like, an area full of tables and servers constantly demanding drinks from me. And uh, I hit a point where it's like, I don't feel tired no more. Like, mm. 
the adrenaline just kicks in and you're just like um the the relief staff got there they're like oh are, are you sure that you're still good to go i'm like honestly at this point i may as well close I, huh. I, i've hit my point i've hit my stride where it's like you know whether it's five hours or or 10 hours or 12 hours what difference does it make once you hit that stride you're just you're gonna keep going until you slow down right and it's only once you slow down that you start to notice that your body is aching and yeah. like your arms are tired and it's true if you're like too busy to think about how tired you are like then you won't you'll just kind of keep going um and that's that's the only way i've like been able to make it through some of these shifts where i've worked like 12 hours 14 hours like straight you know what i mean or like maybe with like a little break here and there but like you know i've worked there have been some like new year's eves uh new year's eve is like a big one where it's like i know it's going to be a long day for various reasons um but yeah there there was like a new year's eve not too long ago where i i worked for 14 hours i didn't get my first break till 11 hours in like it was bonkers. And even then, break. What bartender takes breaks? But some people, yeah. well, when you're on a, when you're on a shift that's that long, I mean, you de- you desperately do need to take right. a break. And, and, and really all it was was like me shoveling food into my face. You know what I mean? Because like you just need calories at that point. And th- the thing is, is that there is no way I'd be able to make, make it through a 14-hour slow shift. Right? If for whatever reason the stars align and, and you know, like the fates deem me unworthy uh and i have to work a 14 hour slow shift oh my god i am i'm gonna lose it you know what i mean like i will not make it through that but a 14 hour like busy as hell shift yeah sure i can make it through that now the hours it seems counterintuitive the hours go by so fast what i was talking to you before when i was saying that this is a different speed is um you know doing corporate restaurant service while bartending versus what we were doing before like kind of like a neighborhood cocktail bar like bartending Mm. um there's a lot of things about it but one of the things i do like about it is that like yeah the hours are going to go by yeah Yeah. you know being a serviceable bartender has its you know it has its advantages and disadvantages i do think that any like if you're trying to be a well-rounded bartender you should spend some time doing just oh. service while bartending. Oh, definitely, and that's the that's the attitude I'm approaching with it now. Is that like, oh, this is different, but this is gonna be like, this is gonna make me stronger. You yeah, know? this is this is like extra training that I haven't had before, and yeah, you know, N- nothing teaches you speed and efficiency uh, and like prioritization in a bar faster than working the service well, especially yeah. on a busy night. Um, you know what I mean? Like you'll learn this is the fastest way to set up my tins and glasses. This is the fastest way, like order in which to pull ingredients. Like, you know what I mean? Like do the simple things first, get them out of the way, right? Like, you know, so that they're not in your way. Like you don't want a wine glass in your way. Just pour the wine, get it out onto the, you know, get it out into the, like the server as well so that they can take it you know what i mean like you don't want like, i mean sometimes you know what I, I mean sometimes this is a completely different uh thing that i'm used to is uh i get i get wine tickets that come up i'll just drop the wine at the ser- i'll drop the bottle yeah at the drop the bottle yeah, if you're yeah. very busy yeah. you drop the bottle in the, the glass ser- at, at the ser- yeah bottle in the glass at the service station and they take care of it yeah so i mean yeah this is de- like you know for me it's much different than what i'm used to but the quality of drink is still very high. I'm still using. I'm still doing all the same sorts of like prep work that I. I mean, 
one thing I will say is that when I was working with you at Freehand, the amount of prep work that I that I had to do when I was there when I was opening, mm. um, it's not as bad as that. So it's definitely still that was a, a good like setup for me. So it's like I can do prep, I can do prep properly, and I can do it relatively quickly. By the way, quick sorry, quick interruption. Do you want to give a shout out to the where you're working at so listeners can come visit you? Oh, well, I'm gonna get to that at the, end, right, at right. the end of it. Don't worry. No, there'll be plenty of time to shout. <laughs> keep them in out. suspense, huh? Yeah, keep them in suspense. You know, we do the whole shout outs at the end of the podcast when we're trying to like, you know, give people their send off. <laughs> Otherwise, right. they'll just be like, okay, where can I find this guy? Well, here. Okay, I can turn the rest of the episode off now. <laughs> Speaking uh, of which, no. we still don't have a proper. Uh, we're you're still not properly milking Instagram. To get, oh yeah, to get all that stuff out. Yeah, and you just told me that you're writing a cocktail companion. No, so I mean I'm, like... I'm putting together my personal one, right? Which I will probably use professionally, but you know it's 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 long overdue. I have a ton of cocktail compendiums from a bunch of different places I've worked at, and you know for a lot of classics and modern classics, I always put my own like not always, but I often put my own little tweak on them. Um, you know, uh, I think mostly out of arrogance, uh, just like a belief that, yeah, I know this cocktail has been around for a hundred years, but I think I can make it better. You know, just like, of Speak course I have the audacity to do that, but you know, it's just like, I also realized that, you know, it's been a little while because of COVID since I've been behind a bar. There's a ton of cocktails where I'm like, I know there was a time in my life where I tried the original specs. I didn't like it. I tweaked it, I found uh, like specs that I liked, and then now I've forgotten it. And so I'm like, okay, no more of that. Let me just like have everything in a, a spreadsheet. And then as I'm like, oh, I'm trying this, I'm experimenting with it, I found specs I really like, boom, write it down, right? Honestly, if, if there's like, if you are a budding like cocktail bartender, right? And your, your goal like mine is to be in the bartending industry as a career, as a long-term career. The one thing I could, you know, uh, amongst a couple, but it, like probably top of the list, if I could go back in time and tell myself, this is how you become a good bartender, take notes, right? Like, right take things, notes, yeah, write, write things, things down. down. You don't want to, I, I am embarrassed by how many times I've had to start the like guess and check process from scratch, start the R&D process from scratch with an infusion or a syrup or some custom made ingredient that I know I already perfected, but I just didn't write down the recipe. Or I wrote it, I scribbled it somewhere on a piece of receipt paper and that has just been lost, right? Inevitably lost. So just document, document your shit, man. Just take notes. Like you will, you will thank yourself for it in the future. Anyway. Uh, I interrupted you, you were saying. I was going to say, no, um, I was just going to, I had to remind myself that, like, speaking of putting your own twist on cocktails, we have the Seelbach cocktail today, ah, and that yes. is, uh, we chose this one because it's a celebratory cocktail that happens to run in with 4th of July, so I went back and forth with Chris, I'm like, what can we do that's got some bubbly in it, because bubbly is naturally associated with celebrations, Yeah. but that's also very American, and what's more American than bourbon and rye? And that's actually like a real question. What's more, what's in a more American product than American bourbon and rye? There's yeah. very few. Yeah, I'm there's sure. Some of the, there's some of our earliest exports. Right. But. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a couple things that uh, were really truly invented in the, in the United States. Um, 
you know, the, the cocktail is one of them. I know I've gone over that in one of the episodes of, of this podcast for sure. Um, the, I mean, yeah, and, and bourbon and rye whiskey. For sure. I what, mean, you had what other about this particular spirits. cocktail? What about this particular cocktail? Is this one American or is this? Oh one yeah, this this one's absolutely American. So I figured right. as much. Yeah, let me let me give you a little bit of history. So uh, the Sealbach cocktail uh, was created at the Sealbach Hotel, for which it is obviously named, uh, in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. Um, the hotel is a very old, very like like kind of an old money posh hotel. Uh, it was finished in 1905 by two Bavarian br- brothers, uh, Otto and Louis Seelbach. Um, by the way, I'm not 100% sure that that's how you pronounce it, just to, to be honest. Like, I'm pretty sure it's Seelbach, I'm but pretty sure it's Seelbach. I, I, I wouldn't be super surprised if somebody if, who knows Bavarian uh, like pronunciations is like, any, actually... If we have any international listeners that want to correct us SoCal boys... And tell us how to properly pronounce these Bavarian names. Please hit us up. Yeah, yeah. Correct us. We don't, um, we don't want to be wrong about these sorts of things. So, yeah. So, it was finished in 1905. And, like, some of its guests are, like, people like Al Capone, F. Scott, Scott Fitzgerald. You know what I mean? Like, the, the well-to-do. Um, it was actually really so popular that they immediately expanded the hotel. Uh, and so, in 1907, uh, the expansion included this, like, super decadent, glamorous... Uh, apparently Bavarian style bar. I don't know what that exactly means, but now I'm curious. Uh, called the Rothskeller Bar. Uh, the ceiling had 24 karat gold stretched over leather and illustrated the 12 signs of the zodiac. Fucking 24 karat gold ceilings. Yeah. Um, so here, here's here's where the Seelbach cocktail was born. All right. So the uh, there is there's this guy named Max Allen Jr. He was a third-generation bartender whose uh, father worked at the Rathskeller, Rathskeller before Prohibition, right? So he remembered, uh, apparently, he like, the story goes, he remembered his father talking about this drink um, and later on relayed the creation of it, the story of its creation, to Adam Seeger, who was the hotel's director in the 90s. So the story goes like this. Uh, in 1912, a young couple from New Orleans was on their honeymoon at the Seelbach Hotel. The gentleman ordered a Manhattan uh, with Peychaud's bitters and Old Forester bourbon, uh, which is apparently the world's first bottled bourbon. I didn't uh, know that, or I think I knew that and forgotten. But until then, bourbon was sold in barrels, which honestly, can we bring that back? Maybe smaller barrels, but how badass would it be to just like you instead know, of buying a bottle, just we, go in and buy like we talked about a little this. Uh, some of the larger, some of the larger distilleries still do it that way. Like you can buy, you can do a specialty order. Yeah, you can yeah. do like you can buy individual bottles of Jack Daniels. Like I know you I mean individual barrels. I'm sorry, not individual bottles. Yes, individual barrels of Jack Daniels. You can right. buy. You can like basically go to the rack house when they're being racked, buy it. Rick house. Oh, sorry, Rick house. Rickhouse, Rackhouse? Rickhouse, actually, yeah. I know, it doesn't really make sense. I've always I mean, called it Rackhouse. Yeah, no, it's Rickhouse. Okay, fine. Well, I'll, we'll check that We'll check that later. Oh, I mean, uh, I, I promise you it's Rickhouse. I just can't remember why it's Rickhouse and not Rackhouse. Okay. It didn't make sense to me either, which is why I looked it up. Okay, the Rickhouse is where all of the barrels are actually stored to age. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, what you can do is you can buy a bottle of Jack Daniels, and then basically it will they'll age it for you, and it's your barrel. And then when it's done aging, you can just... Take it out. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that it work if it works that way exactly in Jack Daniels. I know that there are other places that's where what, that, at least that's the rumor. That's what I heard that you could do. You, you could buy a barrel of that, bring it to your bar, and then you could just have like single barrel Jack Daniels that you can get yeah. for much cheaper than single barrel Jack Daniels at retail. But I think the way it works is that you go down and you taste different barrels and you pick one that you like. And then they will bottle it for you. And you get to keep the empty barrel. But it's not like you put the barrel on a truck and, like, they just deliver you straight a barrel full that of whiskey. Sounds, that sounds more difficult, though. Like, why would they Why would they bottle it for you if they can just give you the barrel? Uh, I'm, I'm sure it might have something to do with laws. It might have something to do with, like, that is the way that people prefer it, like, done anyway. They, like, why I don't want a giant well, barrel. I would prefer if Jack Daniels did it that way because that's easier than transporting a barrel. But, yeah, that'd be really cool to just be like, yo, we got a new barrel of booze. Just bring this into the bar. Right, yeah. No, honestly, I, like, and I'm, you know what? I would not even be surprised if somewhere in the United States, if not else, uh, elsewhere around the world, there's a bar with, like, a, a fucking full-on 54, is it 54 gallon? I used to know this. It might be 55 gallon. Um, that, like, that's that, a, that's a standard that, barrel yeah, size. Size, yes, but there's not always that much liquid in there because they evaporated. Oh, yeah, it's because it. of the angel's chair, yeah. of course. So, but like, I would love to just be able to pour straight off a barrel, especially since over time, it's going to keep aging. Mm -hmm. And so you'll essentially be well, like, you, well, this well, started well, as you a five-year age. Like, you can hook up, this is how they used to do, do it in the old days, is that you'd have like a barrel of ale. And they would tap it. Ale? Or whiskey. Or both. Yeah, but they, both. they would do ales. But they and would, or in wine, too. And they would tap it, and you'd serve it straight out of the barrel with a yeah. tap. Yeah. That's how, the, that's how the taps originally were served. So yeah, you, I think it's actually known as a bunghole. I think that is actually the technical term. Well, the modern like the, the modern way people would understand it is that it's basically a tap. Yeah, it's basically a tap. It's, it's basically a faucet that you attach to a barrel, and then you can control the pour from there. Or, um, yeah. I think that goes in... The, whatever. Yeah. Um... The point is, we all though, know what we're talking about. Yeah, the point is, though, is that um, they didn't used to have glass bottles. You know, how'd you, how did you get your ale served to you at a tavern back in the old days? They would pump it. They would actually have... The, you can still find these. Uh, it's hard to find, but you can find them where it is a, uh, like, essentially it's an oak barrel, uh, usually, or just like a wooden barrel that uh, has ale in a cellar, right? So they would mm -hmm. keep ale... Uh, they'd keep beer, um, I mean, whether it was an ale or a lager is probably an ale, just probability-wise, but I'm not uh, dismissing the fact, like, the chance that it could be a lager. Anyway, you keep those in a barrel in a cellar, right? So cellar temp, so yeah. we're talking, same, like, 55 degrees. Same, like 50. thing with, same thing with wine. You want to keep that in a cellar. You don't want to keep that room temperature. Right. Um, and uh, you actually, they would pump it up. So they would have a tap, and then they would, like, press a pedal. It was usually, like... To, or a pedal or, or like like literally you would pump it like you were pumping out like like from a well or something and they would just like literally pump it up from the barrel that was in the cellar up to the bar and it was carbonated but it wasn't as carbonated as like modern beer because the barrel is not exactly airtight yeah it's only like slightly airtight you know so so yeah like you would it would I've, I've had it before I've had it one time where uh, yeah it's it's like more or less a lightly carbonated beer that's not served super cold, and that used to be extremely common before modern refrigeration. But that's, it's an experience. That's the point I'm getting to, though, is that like for we're asking, oh, could you still get barrels of whiskey? Where I'm like, why? Why not? I mean, 
the old tech is still there because we still age stuff in barrels. Um, it, that's part of the way. I mean, it has to be done in a barrel. That's right. that's part of how you make whiskey in the first place. Um, it would just be a matter of like jerry rigging some old infrastructure so that you could start using wood again instead of CO two and steel and aluminum. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't. With whiskey, you wouldn't need the CO two, right? No. I know. I know. If you wanted to, at least, if only you wanted the aesthetic. I know you can go down to Mexico and buy cheap, like, like fired, new charred American oak barrels. Like you can absolutely do that. Um, it's it's. I mean, this was a few years ago. I was down there in like 2012, but yeah, for about the equivalent of 10 bucks, you can get a one liter barrel, and then it more you're more or less paying a dollar per, like you know, like you're paying ten dollars per liter size more or less of of like a like a new charred american oak barrel i don't know how big they get but like for barrel aging cocktails shit man if i'm ever in a position where i'm in a car driving down to mexico you best believe i'm loading yeah, up the truck well, with like didn't one liter new charred american oak barrels didn't wooden vine hell yeah uh, didn't wooden vine yes. barrel aging their own cocktails we did we had three we had three of them they were like one liter uh like uh one liter size like new charred american oak barrels we did it briefly at the Evely as well but uh i just remember the one at wooden vine because more or less the the bar manager at the time bayardo god, god bless him still one of the best bartenders I have ever worked with and have ever Bayard seen. Bayard is work. a very recognized name in the LA bar scene. A lot of the old school bartenders that I've talked to at various establishments all over the city know who this guy is. Right, yeah. He, he recently moved to, um, and by recently at this point, it's probably like two years ago, maybe, yeah, two years ago, maybe three. Shit. I don't know. They're COVID's kind of disrupted yeah. our, our perception of time. Right, I'm sure he, every all the listeners uh, would agree there. Um, but he, he recently moved to Miami with his fiance, and he actually has a pretty. Um, like a very successful acting career. Like he's he's pretty much out of the game as far as bartending. Uh, he had a like he was one of the principal like lead roles on a, a Netflix series called Pretty Little Things. Um, and yeah, like I think I remember when we first, when he first got his big break because I remember you were talking about it. I, yeah, I kind of went to his. He was working at the Employees Only Bar in L.A. The L.A. Employees Only, uh, the original of course being in New York, um, and. He, uh, yeah, like, I went to kind of his going away last night there, um, because he was moving to Canada for six months for the filming. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, anyway, so he would basically, when we worked at Wooden Vine, uh, the, he basically let me age whatever I wanted in, the, in those barrels. He's like, what, what are you, what are we going to age? You know, like, what, what are we going to do? He would just like, I'd be like, okay, well, what about this? He's like, yeah, sure. All right. And, and so... Honestly, some of the best cocktails I've ever had are just normal cocktails. Like, a barrel-aged bijou, phenomenal. Like, you think, if you like a bijou, barrel-aging that, incredible. Absolutely do it I'm if you can. How, I'm just wondering how barrel-aged chartreuse tastes. Um, well, you can, you can buy it if you want. If you want to shell out the money, chartreuse VEP if, is, a, is, in, um, lim is, is aged for, I believe, 10 years in limousine oh. oak. Oh, it is, dude. So they make it for green and yellow chartreuse. Uh, is limousine French oak age, uh, aged chartreuses. Um, they are not cheap. I think I would imagine not. A bottle of chartreuse on its own already goes for like sixty bucks. Right. I think I'm pretty sure that the the chartreuse 
VEP, the, the green chartreuse VEP uh, at Mission. I only know this because I've been very tempted a few times. I think it's like retails for like $110 for a bottle. Like, oh, it's bad. over 100 bucks. That's not as bad as I thought you were about to say. Fair, fair. Um, it's for, still for like a, a... For a 10-year age, that's a lot. Because that now we're approaching we're approaching good, like, 18-year scotch for, like, that price. Like, yeah. Like, I think a bottle of Macallan 18 is about, like, around that price. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, if you ever are in the mood to treat yourself and you see, your, see a bottle of VEP um, behind a bar... Just like order a pour, just just treat yourself. And like if you're not willing to commit to a whole bottle, right? Like you know, just it's one of those things where if I'm in the mood to treat myself and I see it, I'll be like, how much is that VEP? It it tastes like magic. Like that's how that's the only way I can describe it. Is it literally probably it, black magic, <laughs> dude? It, it tastes it tastes like it tastes like liquid magic, man. I I don't know how else to describe it, but it it's incredible. Anyway, so. Aged Bijou, fantastic. Um, my personal favorite cocktail, the ever obscure uh, Staten Island cocktail, as a barrel aged cocktail. Like, so that is my favorite cocktail, but my favorite rendition of that cocktail is when we did the barrel aging of it uh, at uh, Wooden Vine. Uh, occasionally, I was allowed to, after a shift, sit at the bar and, and purchase a drink, and I always drank that one. I think I actually, of that barrel, I think of that liter, I'm almost certain I bought more than half. Just me. Just like, yep, just gonna just gonna buy this and drink it. Like, oh my god, that is we'll the creme get, de la creme. We'll have to get the Staten Island cocktail on here at one point. Yeah, it it's man, that that one has that one is obscure. It's 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 faded into legend. I think I've had that once with you, and I think it might actually have been at Wooden Vine. But I don't. That is, I, that's I, entirely I, possible. I know the name of the cocktail, but I don't remember what's in it. Yeah, but it, I don't think we actually. Good. I don't. Think we we, we never to, got. We got to get back to the. Yeah, seal we, didn't, we didn't actually I'm get sorry. to finish this. We were talking. We like. We started talking about barrel aged, like yeah, I like know. buying barrels of whiskey, and then we completely got off tangent. You're Just, right. You're right. I'm sorry. I apologize. Hey, I'm, I'm, to, blame I'm to blame too. All right. So, um, okay, we're gonna we're gonna go back back to 1912. Okay, young couple from New Orleans on their honeymoon at the Sealbach Hotel in Louisville. Yes, yeah. Old Forester, uh, Manhattan, the first... With Peychaud's, yeah. yep. Um, the new bride ordered a champagne cocktail. Uh, so this, you know, like, uh, well, okay, no spoilers yet. Uh, the new bride uh, ordered a champagne cocktail with Corbel Brut, uh, which was apparently one of the oldest wineries in the United States. Um, the bartender prepared the, the sugar cube for their champagne cocktail with Angostura, of course. Uh, he started to chill the gentleman's bourbon, and he opened the sparkling wine, uh, which then bubbled over from the flute into the Manhattan. The bartender just combined these two drinks, just poured them together, set them aside, uh, and then went to remake the cocktails for the newlyweds. Uh, he then tasted the mistake out of curiosity, and with a bit of tweaking, the Seelbach cocktail was bored. Uh, 85 years later, Max Allen Jr. was one of the only people who remembered it, the cocktail at all. Uh, and then Adam Seeger, researching the history of the hotel, came across an old menu that listed the Seelbach uh, and then included the recipe. Seeger talked to Max Allen Jr., uh, which is one of his mentors in bourbon knowledge. Uh, and then Max relayed the above story. Seeger put it back on the hotel bar and like restaurant menus. 
uh, and you this can still, still find it. So you this is still, still at the Steelbach Hotel. Yep, yep. So okay. they were just going through, like, he was just going through some old stuff. I found, like, an old menu that had that on there. Right, and then and talked like, to an old bartender whose father was, like, around bartending there at the time. Okay, here's the only problem with this story. It's actually entirely fake. Okay? The whole thing was concocted. This is in, okay, it's in the PDT cocktail book. It's in Brad Parsons' book on bitters, right? It's, the, the cocktail and the story are in there. It was in Gary Regan's uh, cocktail book. This cocktail and the story. Adam Seeger made up the whole thing out of whole cloth. Made Like, he basically... So, so he, what's he, the real origin? He event, here's what it is. He... he Eventually admitted, he's like, I was at a Spanish restaurant, and they had some cocktails with cava and Spanish brandy. I wanted to recreate something that was pre-prohibition style, and I also wanted something that mimicked those cocktails. He, he just created the cocktail and then fabricated the entire story, and then sold that story, just bullshitted it to, I think there was a New York Times article, right? <laughs> or maybe not a New York Times article. There, there was like... This cocktail and the story, right, as being pre-prohibition, <laughs> yeah. like, got past a ton of people. Is published in a ton because, of things. Because, well, actually, if you look at the ingredients and you taste it, like, the... It, it is, seems pre-prohibition style. Yeah, it is. 100%. It, it definitely is. So I would be able to tell if I didn't know the whole story that this wasn't something that was as old as it was being claimed to be. So, um, so yeah, so just a quick, for the listeners, uh, let me just tell you what the specs are. It, it is kind of uh, like a mashup of a champagne cocktail and a Manhattan. Uh, the specs I would say it also reminds me of a French 75 in a, in a couple of ways. But right, yeah. Well, I mean, a French 75 a is, citrus in this is essentially a gin sour style cocktail plus champagne, right? We had a whole um, episode on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the specs that we used are one ounce of bourbon. Half an ounce of uh, Cointreau, seven dashes of Peychaud's bitters, and seven dashes of Angostura bitters. Which is right? a lot of bitters, by the way. Apparently, this is what sold Gary Regan on the fact that this was actually a pre-prohibition drink, right? There's a quote, uh, in one, when I was researching it, there's a quote that Gary Regan is like, you know, I honestly thought you were full of shit. And then you showed me the recipe, and that heavy bitter style is definitely pre-prohibition. Right? He's like, so I'm glad you're not full of shit. He said this to Adam, who the dude who fucking made that shit up, and then he and then Gary Regan published it. Right? Like, damn. Like, I almost feel like Adam Siegler was like, oh, I I'm in over my head. Like, I think I feel like he just got too he just was in over his head, had sold the story to too many people, and was like Oh, shit. Like, I wonder why he ever came clean. Because literally, he could have just taken the secret to his grave. And, like, nobody would like nobody would have been, you know, been the wiser. So, seven dashes of showed seven dashes of Ango. Uh, and then, so we, we, like, because Adam Siegler, the inventor of the cocktail, um, he invented this in, like, nine, the 90s and, like, 95. Uh, he recommends that all of the, the, the ingredients be served cold. So I did a quick stir over ice. Normally, I would have, like a champagne cocktail, would have just built it in the glass. But he specifically recommends, like, make sure all of the, everything's cold. But I didn't want to, like, over dilute it. Cold does not mean, necessarily mean diluted. So I did a quick, you know, stir of all of the uh, other ingredients over ice. 
um, poured it into uh, a, a coupe glass. I, if I had a champagne flute, I would have used that. And then you fill it with a dry sparkling wine. Traditionally, that's champagne, but with all of the other flavors in here, I feel like it wasted money to use champagne. Yeah. So I used a cava, which is like a nice, dry, budget-friendly sparkling wine. Um, for anything that calls for champagne, unless you're going to have this sparkling wine on its own, use cava. Just use cava. Prosecco has bigger bubbles and tends to be a bit fruitier and like even for something a like a bit sweeter. Even for something like a traditional champagne cocktail, because that's just some bitters and a little bit of sugar. Yeah, I just feel like with any like so because of, I mean, one can argue that it's for because of of quality, right? But because of the brand cachet that the word champagne has, right? Yeah, it's going to command a higher price. It just is, yeah. okay? And we can debate about whether or not that actually translates into quality, right? For certain ones, for very high-end champagnes, it probably does, right? But then, so if you're going to lose yeah. that. But, so, why, but yeah. why are you spending that much on a champagne if you're just going to turn it into a cocktail anyway? Right. It's like, turn, it's like turning a 30-year-old scotch into a cocktail. It's like, why would you do that? Right. Just use a cheaper yeah. scotch yeah. that, for your purposes, will be just as good. Yeah, because we're so, going to add a bunch of other flavors in there. The subtleties that you're getting from that top-shelf stuff is going to get lost. Right. So for any cocktail that calls for sparkling, like a dry white sparkling wine, or specifically that calls for champagne... Mm -hmm. I almost always use a cava. Yeah, we use um, we don't we don't serve champagne because we're an Italian place, right? Uh, you you serve prosecco. Well, no, no, we serve a Ferrari, and a couple of huh. like another one. But like we serve Italian wines, and so our default for um, cocktails like this, like the Aperol Spritz. God, I make so many Aperol Spritzes these days. I mean, to be fair, the Aperol Spritz is Italian and does specifically call for, for prosecco. Uh, well, we use, don't don't use, call the cocktail police yeah. on me, but I use cava for them too. Well, I we use brew. We use brew for that. Uh, what kind of? Um, I forget exactly what the brand is. Um, it's not a. I honestly think that it's it's an actual. It's a California made brew. Oh, it's okay. Made in the okay. It's made in the Italian style. Got it. Because the the bottling is very very different. Like if you look at our fridge, you know exactly which one which bottles are Italian and which bottles are mm. Californian. There, there's just a very, there's a very difference, in, there's a very significant difference in style when you're looking at the bottles in the fridge. Right. I mean, so Brut is actually just a reference to the amount of sugar, mm -hmm. right? So you have Brut and like extra Brut and then there's like some other ones. Uh, there, there's a lot of, there, yeah, there's a lot of, if you actually like look into it, there's a lot of different official labor labels that relate to how much residual sugar is in you know the final product brit means dry and then like extra brit means like extra dry yeah. so just yeah. very like like just a little bit of sugar huh. yeah and i would say in general just i mean the as long as the wine is probably white dry and bubbly um the for most of these cocktails like the like this one like the french 75 they're really more of an accent rather than like a star player in the actual like performance that is the cocktail. There's a couple that are, I think are a little bit different. Like I think the Aperol Spritz is a little bit different because you have that sweetness mm. is supposed to balance with the like a very dry, very dry bubbly wine. Right. So that tastes very different depending on it because it's only really two parts. It's really just the Aperol and the Brut. 
Uh, man, sorry. I sorry. I, I know I'm interrupting you again. I apologize. I look. I feel bad. I, I forgot to mention the garnish, which was an orange yeah, twist. Or, an orange twist. On this I, I have a tendency to to ramble and get on tangents. Uh, for any of the listeners who uh, you know are joining us for their first episode, uh, yeah, that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, an orange an orange twist tends to go rather nicely with a couple of different um up cocktails um that are served with yeah. bubbly. But I was gonna. I had one story that I wanted to get to for uh, this particular cocktail and why mm. it brought me back was yeah, go for um, when I was first getting going um, bartending, naturally I started as a bar back just like you did, um, but when I worked my way up at um, a more casual environment, we were I was working at Moose Den, and I learned a lot of really good things at Moose Den, but Moose Den was not really all about... Um, cocktails so much as it was about mostly craft beer and sports and just all sorts of other things like bar games things like that it was a very fun bar at work at right um much different than um what i was doing at the famous when i was learning all of like the the more complicated aspects of like actually getting into like craft bar cocktail making Mm. but um i had become one of the senior members there and i wanted to do something fun for new year's and my manager at the time was Derek Lee Ramsey, who was a guest of ours, he's yeah. a very friend of the podcast. Was he one of the first, if not the yeah? No, he was on one of the podcasts. No, yeah, yeah. He's really, actually really he's on. actually been the only guest we've had so far. Ah, okay. And yeah, despite my best efforts, it's it's hard to coordinate and get three people on here all at the same time when our schedules are so crazy. But right. But yeah, so um, he asked me, um, "What are we going to do for for New Year's Eve?" And so I I told him I had a crazy idea. I'm like, well. You know, normally we don't really dress up and, you know, go real crazy about, like, you know, champagne and stuff like that. But I'm like, what if, you know, just for one night a year, what if uh, we got dressed up and we made this place a little fancier? Put up some decorations. And, like, the minute I said dressed up, uh, Megan, who was working with us at the time, she loved that idea. Because, of course, she did. She, like, mm. wanted she wanted a, a really good excuse for her to come out and wear, like, something New Year's ornate You know, she likes to dress up. And yeah, so uh, we came, so the idea started to come together of like, okay, we're going to make this like a traditional New Year's party, but it's going to be inside the Moose Den. So we're going to have that like contrasting like basement bar darts and like pool and stuff <laughs> like that and shuffleboard, but we're also going to be like, you know, dra- well, the bar is going to be dressing up. We're not going to encourage our patrons to unless they want to. Um, I invited some friends and I told them what we were doing, so they wanted to get dressed up too. It's New Year's. You want to go out? Right. It's a, it's a good reason to, like, you know, and if a lot of people were bar hopping, the famous next door is doing their whole thing. People wanted to go there dressed up too. Um, so the idea that I put together was that I wanted to do, uh, like, a, like, instead of serving champagne and doing a champagne toast like the famous was doing, I wanted to serve a champagne cocktail menu. We don't, we didn't normally carry a lot of champagne at the time. Or a lot of sparkling wine at the time. I'm just going to use champagne because it's easier for me to for me to say. Okay. I know. We just talked about it. Yeah. We just talked about it. It wasn't champagne. Sorry. It was like a... It was a sparkling wine of some You're variety. You're forgiven. Yeah. And um, this ended up on that list as one of the boozier options that was available. Because it's like, okay, I want to do sparkling wine, but I want to do it with like multiple varieties. So I'm like, what kind of things can I do? This, the Frank 75 first came to mind because that one's easy. Uh, pre-batch that. Just churn that out. We were selling it for something real cheap, like seven bucks. Hmm. Something real cheap. Um, the old Cuban was on there. Nice. Didn't have the crushed didn't have the crushed ice to put on top of the, the, the flute, but it was still came out good. 
um, the Sealbot cocktail was on there. And then I forget what else. I mean, I think there was a... Oh, no. There was a... Uh, there was a beer cocktail that was on there. Huh. Yeah. It was a beer cocktail that uh, also had, like... Um, I think it actually was, like... A, we, we layered, like, a dark beer on top of, like, a lighter beer or something. Like, oh, so, or like, like, a, like a, a snake bite style cocktail? Something, something or... like that. It was something like that, but... Um, Black and tan? Something like that, but I think we actually did use sparkling wine for that. Huh. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, that was a weird beer cocktail that was on there. That one didn't sell very well, but it was really interesting to have that on there. So it was like, okay, well, I wanted to do it Moose Den style, so, like, what could we do? So I had rum, I had uh, gin, I had bourbon, and then I had a beer cocktail, all of which were in theme for this. And so it was the first time that I had ever gotten a chance to put together that menu. Um, unfortunately, we weren't very busy, and unfortunately, most of the people that came in mostly wanted to try the the normal stuff the craft beer the stuff that sure. we're that we're known for but everyone that tried the cocktails that were on that menu that I put together myself I had come in the day before made sure everything was prepped out these seven dashes of uh, Peychaud's and Angostura I just had a bottle of that that was pre batch pre batch yeah that was just pre batch ready to go and all I did was I measured it out I think it was like you did like a quarter of an ounce of this hmm. so you didn't even do dashes you just did like a quarter ounce yeah that makes sense I, I, I showed Andrew the ridiculous amount of liquid that uh, like because I made both of these cocktails together when I like in one glass when I stirred them uh, it was like 28 dashes yeah. of bitters seven, seven each times two yeah yeah <laughs> it's ridiculous I love it so I mean when I uh, when I was talking to you before about um, putting together a cocktail like for today that was American but that still um, had like that bubbly New Year's Eve mm. celebratory style thing going for it. Right. When you mentioned the Steelbach, I'm like, where have I seen that before? And then it brought me back to like a really cool period in my life where like this is when I was first getting going. This was a, like one of the first creative things that I ever really was able to put into practice. And even though it didn't go, even though it wasn't a huge hit in terms of like its popularity, everyone that did actually try the cocktails were like, dude, these cocktails are good. Hmm. And that's not that's that was the whole thing. It that's not what we were known for. But the people right. that were there that wanted to try it, wanted to be festive, they got real into it. So it right. was it was a real fun time, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, there are times where you put a cocktail on the menu for you, right, or for the staff, right? Where or or really, it's like this is like going to be the the cocktail that industry people are gonna like because it's weird. It's off the beaten path. You know, I almost always, uh, and for anybody who's like listened to all of the episodes, I apologize if I'm repeating myself. I almost always um, put one cocktail on my menu that's like, this is for the person that's had everything else, right? This is like, if I were to come in and, and look at this cocktail menu, this is what I would order because I'd be like, I don't know how you pull this off. Like, let's try this. Right? Like, this is the really weird one. Um, so, you know, and, and I, I just know, I'm like, this is well, probably going to be the least popular cocktail, <clears throat> but it's going to be the one for the cocktail nerds. And I know that I've said this before on uh, the Long-Winded Spiel when we were on there together, but I definitely believe in having a nice balanced menu. Mm -hmm. And just as I said there, what do I mean by that? Well, your menu's got to appeal to everybody. And so... Just like the menu that that I'm currently working with at um, the current spot that I'm at, um, a lot of those a lot of those options are very crowd pleasers. You know, they're crowd pleasers. Mm. Um, 
But there's a couple of things on there that are a little bit weird. Like, we've got something on there called the Guns N' Roses cocktail. And at first, mm. at first, I was not a fan of this cocktail. Because I'm like, Guns N' Roses, it's got strawberry in it? Ah, that's not Guns N' Roses to me. But, right. um... Yeah, I mean, you're... Like, I'm a big Guns N' Roses fan, but nowhere near as big as you. So, it's a... I have very contrasting feelings about this cocktail. Right. Because it is muddled strawberry, mezcal... St. Germain, rose water, lemon juice, served up with a sugar rim, and then garnished with a flower. Well. Half of that I like. (laughs) Half of that I like. Half of that I don't. The end result, it's pretty good, actually. It, um, it's pretty good. It, uh, the mezcal, I mean, the mezcal gets toned to a point where someone that's not used to mezcal can handle it. Hmm. You know, so like me personally, and I know you too. We love mezcal. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're gonna jam with mezcal, let mezcal do its thing. You know. Yeah. Let it be the star of the show. Right. But this cocktail doesn't really do that. It tries to like keep mezcal in the background, but mezcal is such a strong player anyway. You can still definitely taste it, and it's a very Instagrammable cocktail. The, su- the sugar rim, the muddled strawberry pulp, which gives it a nice pink color. Yeah. Um, and then it's served with a nice flower inside of it. Yeah, it's, I mean Saint Germain is is yeah. is a crowd pleaser for sure. Yeah, definitely for sure. I don't. I I think that if I had my way, I would sub the Saint Germain out with something a little more interesting. Um, but either way, um, that one almost never gets sent back. Everyone <laughs> likes that cocktail, whether they order it for the mezcal, whether they order it for the name, or whether they order it because it looks pretty. Huh. That one always. That one tends to always please the crowd. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, like, I get it. I have no, not surprising at all that that would be very, very popular. I mean, mezcal is definitely becoming more and more popular. It's one of the, like, new hit-in things with, I think, with, like, the norm, like, I don't know. If, if you look at cocktail culture in terms of, like, echelons, where, like, the smallest circle in the center is the people who are, like, on the cutting edge they're the ones that are like yeah i literally went and hand harvested this agave myself and then distilled it and then like like used the dirt from the farm to like you know like like the really really kind of like out there shit where it's like okay i respect what you're doing and that's amazing but i don't know how anybody actually has the time and energy and effort to like actually go ahead and do that but that's probably because they have yeah man good that's probably because they're not doing that for a living they're doing that as a passion project because they have their money elsewhere you know who knows i mean but but there's that group right which is like you guys like they are the ones that are like in development of all of the new weird cool shit right they're literally the ones the mad scientists making that stuff and then you have kind of like the 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 bartenders the like cocktail writers like the restaurateurs and the chefs and stuff who have their finger on the pulse of those people and, then just and are riff. constantly like following yeah. and then like riff on that and be yeah. like oh this is cool and then riff on that and then you have people that are like the cocktail drinkers like that are like the cocktail nerds right and that's a bit of a larger group and they're like oh man like the, the stuff that this coming out of this is really cool let me go and seek that and then you have more of like it kind of becomes more and more mainstream from yeah. there right and I think that Mezcal has kind of hit the mainstream audience. And now it's like, that is the cool new thing that like mainstream people Time are out. getting into. Time out. So, yes, yes, 
Uh, I agree with you, but that's because we live in L.A. That's true. We do have a biased perspective because L.A., you know. Yeah, so it also depends on which part of L.A. So you live, like, within very easy biking distance of a bar that specializes in mezcal. You're on the other side of the L.A. River. Uh, There's much more of an acceptance in mezcal there than if you come to this side. And depending on where you are, there's not as much. So, like, I still warn my servers. I'm like, yo, before you sell one of these, ask them if they've ever had mezcal before. And, you know, they all say that they do that because they they all are very well aware that, like, Fair. there are some people that, like, they see mezcal, they don't know what that is, they're not ready for the smoke. Fair. And smoke is one of those flavors where it's like, once you're into it, oh, it's great. Yeah. But it takes a little while. Yeah, I feel like you kind of, like, in a lot of cases... To get the actual, like, subtlety and beauty of a live mezcal. And when I say mezcal, I, I really mean uh, agave spirits because the legal world of mezcal and various agave spirits is a rat's nest, right? It is a, like, rat's nest of complicated issues. Um, it is not cut and dry in any way, shape, or form, right? Saying that X is mezcal and Y is not, if they're both distilled from a species of agave, like that, it's a whole can of worms, okay? So when I say mezcal, what I mean is like agave spirits yeah, we in need, general. We need, probably right? like, we need probably like an expert. I think we know somebody who I think we could both agree would come on and it, talk it, about that. If, if for the listeners, if you guys want a like, you know, basically kind of quick and dirty intro to that rat's nest of of legal and social and cultural like you know issues uh i highly recommend ivy mix's book so as a bartender and bar owner uh ivy mix uh and she wrote a book called uh, spirits of latin america it's one of my favorite cocktail books like they're split into three segments uh agave spirits uh sugarcane spirits and, uh, you know, grape spirits. So Pisco is definitely in there. Yeah, Pisco and Singani and, like... like and Cachaca and... Yeah, so, like, and, and basically it's not just, like, and all of those... about the spirits. It's, like, the history and the modern, like, social, political issues surrounding them, as well as some phenomenal cocktails. You know what I just realized now that I was talking, while I was naming those, those spirits out loud? All of those are getting more and more popular in the cocktail scene. Right, that's Cachaca, true. Pisco especially, Mezcal especially. Yeah. Uh, they're all, like, starting to come in at the same time. So would you say, kind of like as a general, you know, not holding you to this claim, but what are you say? would you say that there's becoming more of a Latin and South American influence in the American cocktail scene? Now that we've already explored all the stuff that's in Europe, you know, we've done... I mean, we have Well, maybe not. Aquavit, we've... Aquavit is on its uh, on its way up. That's I, true. I think that... I, by... Although I can't stand Aquavit, so I don't understand There's, what that look, is. But the thing is, is that the Aquavit, we've, we've been very limited in terms of uh, brands of Aquavit. Um, sorry, it's Aquavit. It's actually Aquavit. Okay, Aquavit. Yeah. I like, still know what it is. Yeah, it, yeah. It still tastes uh, like... It still I, just I burns recently, my throat. I recently learned from, like, a, a rep who knows her shit... Um, that it's Aquavit, actually. I'm, uh, you know, it's not, it's not pronounced Aquavit. Um, I, that's just a habit that's going to take me a little while to, like, get, get out of. Anyway, um, 
the, the brands that we have had have been limited for a long, long time, and now Just there's like an expansion there of other, brands, yeah. right? And and you know, like Ahus, A H U S. I'm I'm like seventy five percent sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Ahus, Aquavit, like there there's pretty damn good. There's is like quite good. I like that one a lot. I don't know um, if I'm ready to start exploring Aquavit just yet. There's so much else I still need to learn. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that, that like, yeah. Baiju is something that a lot of people have been sleeping on. That, like, I think that, that Baiju is, uh, like, actually, like, absolutely a spirit that we should uh, explore more here as far as, like, cocktail application and, and just, like, straight up drinking it. It's, it's actually the most consumed spirit in the world by volume because they make it in china and they drink the shit out of it in china aquavit uh, is no 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 um uh baiju b-a-i-j-u it's made from sorghum okay like sorghum which is right, a type so of not like not soju not soju no, which no, no, is no. popular in korea but baiju because i know baiju. So, i know soju i don't know baiju yeah again most americans don't it but like it's it's funky. It's floral. It's aged in uh, in clay pots, for like 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 I, I, most of them are like buried underground. It's aged in clay pots. Like that's fucking cool. Like it, it yeah. It's it's a sorghum distillate. Um, yeah. It's uh, I I think that there's a lot of things that are on their way up. I think that as the cocktail world starts, at least maybe this is my like partially my hope. Um, and partially in my expectation that as we keep kind of pushing the frontier uh, for ingredients, all of these smaller things that are like popular in their own countries or, you know, like things that are popular that are like niche specialty stuff that's popular worldwide, I hope that we can discover them and like bring them over and use them. Well, that's what cocktails are for, isn't it? It's I, just yeah. the combination of ingredients and, you know. For a long time, it wasn't the case, to, to be honest. I mean, I think that cocktails were first created mostly, and I'm, I'm talking very early on, as a means of like masking cheap, like masking shitty booze. I shouldn't necessarily say cheap, but distillation science was, you know, early on uh, was very imperfect, right? You have a lot of products that like, like if we were to drink whiskey, if we were to drink a distillate made in the like early 1800s, you and I, we'd be like, oh, this is rot gut shit. This is stuff that we wouldn't even put in the well nowadays. But I'm talking about the golden age now. I'm talking about the golden age of like New Orleans, San Francisco, New York, uh, Paris, where they're like starting to really explore that sure. marriages between continents, right? Because, so like later yeah, on, yeah, yeah you're right. Because when, when we're getting to like the golden age of cocktails, we're talking about like how Europe and North America are like marrying through colonialization all all of the different things that grow here versus all the things they want to bring over. So you're introducing things like freaking uh, bourbon and scotch, and you're introducing that with like. The fresh fruits of the south, or you know the oak that grow, or the 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 abundance of American oak that we have here versus mm. they didn't have that much over in Europe. I mean, they did. It like, but European oak is is different, right? Okay, like but still, French oak is different. And uh, God, where else do they have it? There's another like there's an Eastern European, um, Lithuania. I don't know. There's another... Well, there's a lot of trees in Lithuania. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, French oak, it's just, it's different. 
But you get my point. Uh, you American get my point Oak. that it was like that golden age it, of cocktails yeah. became the golden age, and I want to say for many reasons because you have the the marriages of flavors between Europe and what was now the budding like American colonies at the time, the Caribbean, uh, the new United States, uh, parts of South America, but not really. But you definitely had the sugarcane and molasses influence and all the rum that was being produced over there. And so as we as we develop over time, uh, the rest of the world starts to get more and more involved. And so it's cool to that revelation I just had earlier about how all of South America and Latin America seem to be getting more involved in terms of their native flavors, like how they originally made their booze, and that's becoming more common. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm thinking of this world now where like there will be very few unfound flavors yet to go, and it'll just be like you're drinking... Uh, you're drinking scotch with sorghum as a with sorghum distilled as like a like a modifier, and then you got a little bit of like you know sugar from South America in there or something like that, and like you're just you're having like a cocktail that literally is the world in a glass. Yeah, I mean, so the the thing is, this is one of the things that Ivy Mix's book really like opened my eyes to is that yes, we are like two things. One is. South American spirits used to be a lot more popular, and then you had a bunch of, like, wars and revolutions, right? And then right, those stuff, sense. right? Like, for example, the Pisco Sour was invented in California. Pretty sure it's inve- it was invented during the gold rush in San Francisco. It, like, Sounds or, or right. either that or it was invented by an American in Peru, right? But, like, either way, it's not, like, a Peruvian native thing, okay? Oh, of course not. But, and then on, on top of that... Like, we, we, we think of cachaça, right? And we think of, like, more or less one thing. There are different brands, but it's like, there's cachaça. But in Brazil, they make a ton of, like, they make sugarcane distillates. And then, because Brazil has so many different trees, they age them in, like, like a crazy number of different woods, right? And then, like, there's also, we think of rum, okay? And we think of, like... Maybe maybe you and I think of a couple different styles, right? Jamaican rum is one particular style. Um, you know, rum agricole, yeah, like rum, rum yeah. agricole is one is another particular style. You have like kind of what is known, uh, and I put air quotes around this because it's not a real category of like Spanish style rum, which is like usually made with at least partially column still rum. So Bacardi, Cuban style rum. Yeah, Bacardi is that, right? Like, Bacardi became famous, like, because essentially they did column distillate rum and they charcoal filtered it. So it was rum that was even closer to, like, that was closer to vodka than any rum had been before. And so we think of that, but there's actually a ton of different sugarcane distillates that never make it over to the States, right? There are a ton of different agave distillates that never make it over. So what you're saying is that the, the Latin and South American... The amount the the well is very deep. Yeah, we are seeing the tip of the iceberg, right? And that's super exciting. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that that what stands in their way are a couple things. One, regulation, right? If you're essentially a moonshiner in Brazil, you can't afford the like legal fees. If you can be making a great product, right? Mm-hmm. And I've had actual for real moonshine, moonshine illegally made i've had actually like illegally made uh cane like sugar distillate moonshine that was good where i was like if this was in a bottle 
I was like, maybe the proof is a little too high, but I, I can, you know, I was, you I, can add water. To that, right. Yeah. It was actually, I was actually very proud of myself. I'm going to just like brag for a second here. Cause I tasted it. And I was like, what is the proof on this? Like, what is the proof on this? I was like, it's, it's over a hundred. I was like, not by much, but it's over a hundred. And the person was like, uh, the distiller clocks it in at somewhere between 105 and 110. Right. I'm like, all right, cool. Nice. I was like more or less on the money here. So like it, it's a, it's a, uh, a cane sugar distillate that is illegally made, but good. Right. Where I was like, if this was in a bottle, I'd buy it and I'd put it in a cocktail. And 105. So I mean, yeah, it's high, but it's not unheard of high. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just like. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, especially for rums. But I've had like I've had barrel strength, um, I've had barrel strength bourbons that are higher. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, you know, but it was like based on the like style, it was unaged. But it kind of like I was like, this reminds me of somewhat akin to a rum agricole, which makes sense because there's no molasses involved in this one. It's just straight sugarcane juice. Um, you know, but I was like, there's some other funky things in there, and I'm like. This is really good. I made a daiquiri with it, and I'm like, this is solid. This Dude, is so good. Now that I'm thinking about it, fuck yeah. A daiquiri made with over 100 proof oh, moonshiner rum? That sounds like that's how a daiquiri's supposed to be made, goddammit. Because right. otherwise, it's just a gin gimlet with that has a little tiny bit well, of molasses. Well, it's a rum gimlet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, with like a little tiny bit of like molasses after flavor. Yeah. But if you start really pumping up the rum, you start really making that the star of the show. And I, I think this is a common thing with you that, like, kind of you influenced me, but I think we were kind of influenced together in that, like, if we're making cocktails and we're making classics, the classics really should be about, you know, the primary ingredient, you know? Let let that, let the let the booze be the star and then just use the, the modifiers to, like, make the booze, like, you know, play well, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, and, and a lot of, you know, a lot of, like we're most modern drinkers are used to your 80 proof 40 percent abv right it's kind of become the standard sure but if you're but having I, that by itself or you're having that on uh, with water yeah, cool. ice, yeah. I, I don't want to i don't want to drink a 100 proof by itself you know i'm gonna want to want to water that down especially as i get older but i'm just saying you give me a 100 proof rye 100 proof barrel bonded rye and you make a manhattan with that I guarantee you it's better yeah. than if you make a Manhattan with a soft well, 80 proof. Yeah, it's just, yeah. I, and I, I think that a lot of classic cocktails, again, they were created, when they were created, booze was more intense. Not necessarily always in a good way, but certainly just more intense. Um, and so, yeah, like that's the reason why I drop my camp, well, you and I both, I think, drop our Campari in a Negroni and up the gin is because with equal parts, the gin kind of gets clobbered. Unless it's navy strength, right? And like Yeah, no, a navy strength gin, I have no problem making that equal parts, but then right. the vermouth gets lost. I sure. still think Campari, is, it's too powerful of a flavor. Yeah, I mean, to each their own, right? Uh, so, I mean, if you really want the flavor of Campari, that sounds great. But, like, I think if for most people, more maybe I'm just projecting a bit, but I think that if you want a balanced cocktail, and what did Matt Wallace always teach me? Uh, that you don't want your cocktail to be of too much of one thing. You want it to be balanced. Mm. That's what he taught me. That was like the general philosophy he uses when he's making it's his own cocktails. Yeah. I, I think it makes sense. A lot of what Matt Wallace said made sense. You just have to get past the curse words first. <laughs> oh, I embrace the curse words. I love that. Wow. Uh, 
Yeah. So, so yeah, so I, I tend to make my base spirits, I want to make sure they stand out. Again, my, one of my general philosophies for cocktail making is there should be a reason for every ingredient in your cocktail. All right. Like I see too many cocktails that read really well on a menu and photograph really well for Instagram and you taste them and you're like, this is boring and I can't taste half the things that are listed on here. Right. You know, like, yeah, you may have a lot of like buzzword ingredients, but it's like, ah, oh, that always bugs me. That but irritates like, me more than anything else is buzzword ingredients. It's like, if I can't taste them, like, why the fuck are they there? If I, if you could make this cocktail without them and it tastes almost exactly the same, like what is, what is the point? So for me, when I'm making a cocktail, I always try to ask myself, I'm like, why is this here? Is it the acid? Is it the bitter? Is it the sweetener? Right? Is it like, Every does it add a floral a purpose, note yeah. or an herbal note or whatever? You're right. Every ingredient should have purpose. And if it doesn't have purpose, either change it so that it does or take it out. Get rid of it. No point. Right? So like that's, you know, and, and, and so that's, I, I, I guess like if you're going to have whiskey, if, if you're going to have a Manhattan, you should taste all the things in it. Right? They should all be noticeable uh, to an extent. You know, like um, bitters can be a bit more subtle, right? Because obviously it's meant to be added in dashes. And unless, like, I recognize that my palate is a bit extreme and that I love bitters. Like, I love bitter shit. Mm -hmm. So, like, you know what I mean? Like, I drink Angostura neat um, on the regular. Um, it's actually funny enough, even though it has a decent amount of booze in it, Adding ice increases the tannins. So if you add ice as a way of watering it down, it actually makes it more bitter. Where it just by itself, I mean, it's, to me, it's like a, an IPA with a really sweet aftertaste. Like you get a lot of cinnamon in there for some reason. Yeah, there's a lot of cinnamon, a lot of clove. Um, there's a decent, actually, amount of sweetness in Angostura bitters. And I think once you dive past the like bitter, bitter kick to it, there's a lot of like subtlety and depth in there that I think is really interesting. So like, but you know, again, for a, 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 an ingredient that is designed to be added in dashes, like drinking it neat is a bit of an adjustment for most people. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It was an adjustment for me too. Right. But this is right when I was learning how to drink ginger juice straight and all sorts of other things that you guys right. were making me drink. Yeah. So it was all, uh, <laughs> it wasn't as much of an adjustment for me because my mind was already in that mindset. So, you know, like, but, so bitters could be a bit more subtle, but yeah, in general, it's like, you should taste everything. And I feel like, you know, there's, for, there's a time and a place for 80 proof liquor, for sure, but most of the time I want to up it. There, there are exceptions, right? Like, I think, like, you know, I think, like, like, Capuro Pisco only clocks in at 43% ABV, Singani is probably only 40%. But both of them have such an intense floral characteristic. Like their their aroma is such is so intense that you don't need a, a like a higher strength version of it. Also with pisco, I mean, with a lot of people, pisco, they're not allowed. I mean, a lot of people too. I mean, this is a completely different. Um, well, sort of. This is completely different than Peruvian pisco that's got like traditions and shit. But I think just in general, the American palate is still we're we talk. Because we're cocktail geeks. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been doing this for a little while. 
And I think that our palettes are not the same as most people's palettes. We're like, we're just like, oh yeah, we want 100 proof booze in our cocktails. Yeah. Whereas people are just like, oh, well, if it, if it burns at all like alcohol, it scares me. You know, like there's, they haven't even graduated up to being able to take a stirred cocktail yet. Right. You know, so for them, um, the proofing on, on uh, all those bottles, it's appropriate. Sure. It's yeah. appropriate. But, I mean, you, you, the thing is, and I, this is what I love about, I see this sometimes too when I go out now, is that like, you know, back when I was first starting, and this was only like, what, six years ago or so, like when I was first coming in to visit with you and David Tran at the Famous, you know, how many times, how often were you pouring vodka sodas and Jameson and ginger ales and, you know, rum and cokes? Yeah, I mean, pretty often those are like very commonly ordered, and and but they're I, totally fine. No, but that, but my point is is that like, right now, I barely pour any of those. Like mm. it's almost all house made cocktails. It's almost all like hmm. you know classic. It's becoming more and more, and like it's almost to my detriment because it's like, I mean, yeah, like if you just want like you know an eight dollar well with some soda on top, that's fine with me. I mean, that takes me no time to make it. But now I've got like, you know, now I've got like eight tickets coming in all at once and they're all shaker tin cocktails. Or God right. forbid someone wants, someone specifically wants like a stirred cocktail with a big rock. That's even more time that I got to like deal with. Really? Now. Yeah. Huh. So like, maybe it's just where I'm at now because there's a lot of affluence at the Americana. Maybe that's just changing my perspective a little bit, but I'm starting to notice that there is becoming more and more of a, like an acceptance of like a more and more of a change in this like uh this what is it favoritism of like kind of more classic flavors like we're mm. win- like we're winning this little culture war we're winning it we're getting like people to like start to appreciate more developed more nuanced flavors but i'm starting to see that that's not all that's not all roses and rainbows. That's good. That's making our jobs a little harder at the same time. Eh. And hey, you know what? That's a good problem to have. Yeah, I mean, we we, we did it to ourselves, right? But like, I, I I don't I don't really I don't regret it. I mean, it's a double edged sword for sure. But I what I what makes me hopeful is that as markets grow, right? As like kind of honestly, for better or for worse, as the money interests grow, you're able to bring in new products right from like all around the world that would have been a bit more niche but they're adjacent to you know other things that the the uh, like the american palate is already pretty used to yeah it's like a pisco sour versus a whiskey sour uh yeah i mean i was gonna say more like something like the the analogy i was gonna use is like like you couldn't have brought cachaca to the united states if rum wasn't like yeah. here thing, yeah. and now because cachaca is here, you can bring in, you can start to like bring in all of these weird aged Smaller Brazilian versions of like cachaca, like yeah. like distilled spirits. I'm with you. And like you know, mezcal when it first hit the U.S. market was almost entirely just espadine, right? But now we've got mezcal of like every type of flavor and aroma and, out there. And even All then, the crazy it, shit. Did it come in as know? mezcal or does it come in as smoky tequila? I mean, it was it was probably introduced verbally as like, this is like a smoky tequila, but I'm almost certain it was like, 
you know, yeah, this is mezcal. Yeah, and like, definitely with you, Espadine was pretty much all I sold, and now I'm starting to see more of some of the other varieties. Yeah, it still it. makes up the vast majority yeah. of mezcal. Hey, I love Espadine mezcal. You know, that's produced. Um, you know, the center of that being in Oaxaca. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, like, without that, right, like, Espadine walked so that Tepestache and, like, Tobaziche and, like, Cupreata could run. You know what I mean? It was, like, that's that's how that works. And so I, that's what makes me hopeful is that if we can start Now pushing, we're getting an invasion from Mexico of all of the flavors. I know. All, the, fun, yeah, all dude. the fun shit. Fuck yeah, dude. Bring it on. Um, yeah. Well, Chris, this has been pretty freaking sweet because I had a whole other topic that I wanted to get to today, but... We have spent so much time just bantering all over the place, tangenting all over the place, <laughs> that we weren't even get, able to get to some of the other things I wanted to talk about. But you know what? That's a good problem to have. Um, I think the, uh, I think both of us are just happy to be doing this shit like on the regular again. You know? Yeah, I mean, for it's one, me, it's one thing to not do. so much, right? Like, I'm not back behind a bar yet. Uh, I'm pursuing oh. some things that I cannot talk about quite yet. Listeners, uh, he's doing something better. He's yeah, doing, I mean, I again, I don't want to. No, yeah. we're not going to talk about it. Can't talk about it yeah. yet. Not allowed. So, but uh, Andrew is uh, at uh, Amici in yeah. uh, the, the Americana. Yeah, the Tortoria Amici uh, restaurant. I'm actually working at both of their bars right now. Um, so you which, can find him there. Yeah. You can find, yeah, it's basically you find the outside bar in the big Italian restaurant. I'm at one of those five days a week. They are giving me the hours, let me tell you. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm I'm adjusting to that place still, but definitely can still make you a mean drink if you guys want to come visit me there. Uh, the food there is incredible too. I'm still learning all the food. It's in Italian, so I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> but um, yeah, man, I'm super excited to be doing this full time again, and I love it. Yeah, I'm excited for you. Um, all right. Until next time, everybody. Well, I mean, thanks we for gotta, joining us. Well, before I do that, we got to finish off with all the sound offs. Uh, okay. So uh, we got Chris Raba here. Uh, I'm gonna try and get him here again, but he is a very busy man to get a hold of. But if you want to get a hold of him yourself and discover some of the things that he does creatively, uh, that's Chris D Raba at Instagram. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Chris D Raba is my Instagram handle. Instagram. Mine is gonna be uh, Arisendez88 uh, at Instagram, but. It's also easier to find me on YouTube or through this podcast, and all of that is going to be KT Vindicare. So KT Vindicare at Outlook, KT Vindicare on YouTube, and then also the Geeky Bartender at Outlook mm. is our official for this one. So if you have any requests, any suggestions, any comments, um, any of that stuff, send that there. Otherwise, uh, yeah. Um, I hope look forward to the next one. I know that there's some other like more pop culture topics that I've got in mind, and I've also got a few guests in mind too. So hopefully, it won't be another few months before we get another upload. But uh, it's all subject to change now that we're all being busy again. We're all right. back to our yeah. normal lives. Life is, you know, life. Um, so all right. until next time, folks. Uh, we will talk to you soon. Bye.